0: And tonight what we're going to be reading, um, John uses a lot of family language. And he's um, answering the question, what does God uh, do to us in his love? And the answer is that he adopts us and calls us his children. And the identity that's on offer in the Christian gospel stands in contrast to all of the other ways that we try to get our identity. And the way that others try to identify us. I mean, we are forever asking the question and answering the question, who am I? Who am I? Um, I mean, people, right? We obviously get our identity from many things. We get our identity from our physical appearance or work or success, family background, possessions. And the strength of, of these identities is that for a time, they make us feel really good about ourselves. Um, and others respond to these identities, however faulty they may be, right? They work for a time. Our culture responds to them. They're, they're powerful influences over us, and it's difficult not to buy into the belief that they can give us a significant identity. Although all of us are swayed at one time or another to pursue our identities along these lines, um, the long-term consequences can be disastrous. If, um, I've got a quote on the front of the bulletin from a guy named Dick Keys. It says this: He says we are prey to a network of influence, new, network of influences that insist that one's personal worth depends on physical appearance. Youthfulness, money, gadgets, ability to impress people. Even if we are successful in meeting these demands, they will destroy us. The person who possesses some of these qualities is condemned to be valued only in terms of beauty or money or success, which all can be easily lost at some time. And the person who has the courage to rebel against these is judged worthless by society. Um, And that judgment ends up being a a powerful deterrent to rebellion. I love the way he says here, the person who possesses some of these qualities is condemned to be valued only in terms of beauty, money, success, which can be easily lost at some time. Right? I mean, I know this happens to you, right? You share something really hard about your life and your friends respond, but that's okay because you're doing well in school, or that's okay because you're so pretty, or um, you try to have real friends, but all they see is... Um, all they see is your family's money. And so you're not sure who your real friends are. Or you want to be known and valued, so you throw yourself into your schoolwork. You throw your weight into being successful, hoping that being successful will tell you who you are and will tell the world who you are. Or maybe you're in the last category and you've actually bucked the system. You actually have the courage to rebel against it. And then people judge you as worthless. They don't see you have having any value in this identity game. And if we pursue identity along these lines, as Dickie says, um, these identities will destroy us. And Christian identity is radically different because it's an identity that is birthed of love and it will actually lead to your flourishing. It will not destroy you and it will actually lead to your flourishing. Because the identity offered by God in Jesus Christ is this. It's the identity as a child of God. We're going to read this tonight. First John three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So we're going to read this together. Um, it's on the back of your bulletin. Reading First John two chapter, First John chapter two verses twenty eight through three verse ten. Um, this is the word of God for us tonight. It is completely true. It is good, and it is given to us in love. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. but But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So tonight, my sermon has two points. It's on your bulletin. Uh, We're going to look at how the love of the Father gives us a new identity and how the love of the Father gives us a new way to live. So first, the love of the Father gives us a new identity. And this identity, as I've already said, is um, we are called children of God. And when when John tells us this, he wants us to be astonished at it. I mean, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Um, He says, behold what kind of love the Father has given to us. And this word behold is he's, he's calling his readers to say, he's saying, look, look at this. This should astonish you. Consider this tremendous thing. Forget everything and focus your attention here. He's saying to us, look at the depth and wonder of the Father's love for us that he has made us children. But we don't, I mean, we're not jumping out of our seats right now. We don't share this amazement. Why don't we share this amazement? Well, for one, um, we think that we deserve to be called children of God. For many of us, the idea of being a child of God is just something that we throw around. Right? We hear things like, well, all people are God's children. And so when John tells us to behold, the truth doesn't really do anything to us. But in contrast to our culture's narrative of vapid inclusivity, the Bible never assumes that we are all children of God. In fact, it actually starts with the opposite. And in the passage I just read, John's language is so intense, right? It's so black and white. He contrasts being a child of God with being a child of the devil, right? For many of us, this just shuts down our ears as being overly judgmental. It shuts down our ears as being fundamentalist. Um, maybe this is like this, this, this backwards. Maybe you hear this and you're like, oh man, that's just another one of those things that shows that the Bible is irrelevant to my life. But what John is doing here, if you're willing to listen to him, what he's doing here is he's using these stark contrasts to wake us up to reality. What he's saying is that without the love of the Father, we are doomed to be forever lost in our sin. That sin actually has an author. And he has many names in the Bible. He's called the serpent, and it's Satan, and the devil. And sin actually proceeds from him. And that sin is the, is the cause of all sadness. It's the cause of all death. It's the cause of all brokenness. In this world, And so if you hear that from me and you still don't buy it, um, a question for you, some, something for you to wrestle with. Um, how do you make sense of the fact that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be? As you're experiencing the death of loved ones, the brokenness of relationships, um, the fallenness of the world, the fact that things aren't right, right, that deep sense that things just aren't the way they're supposed to be, how do you make sense of that? Like, where do you go? What are the things that you hang um what hooks do you hang, your, you hang this ideal on? To, to, like how do, you, how do you anchor yourself? What, what is the source of this, this brokenness um, and sadness and death in this world? The Bible says that um, it, it comes, it has a source. Um, and the origin is, um, is the devil. And I, I know this sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy what John is saying. But he's doing it in the starkest of terms. Um, he's doing this that we'll see that we are either children of God are children of the devil. And he's doing this so that we can see the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. That outside of the adopting love of God, our hearts are only going to love the wrong things. And we will be without God and without hope in the world. And the news that John gives us will never amaze us as as long as we feel that in some way we deserve or we're entitled to being children of God. And I know this sounds crazy, But it's only as we understand the truth that by our nature we are actually objects of God's wrath and deserve only judgment and condemnation. It's only when we understand that this is God's righteous response to our sin that we will respond with wonder and amazement at the offer of being adopted as God's children. Because God has no reason to treat us as children. Because of our sin condition, we are enemies of God. Our heart's natural bent is to be against God to desire not him in his glory, to say not thy will be done, but to say my will be done. But in Christ, he treats us as sons and daughters in whom he delights and in whom he loves. So through faith in Christ, he actually treats us the same way that he treats his son. Jesus, who was sinless and did nothing but completely please his father. And John wants us to hear that this is who we are in Christ. He says it five times in this passage. He calls the readers children of God. And he does this because he wants to drive deep into us, that he wants to drive deep into us the fundamental reality of life as a Christian, that a Christian is one who has God as their father. And this identity utterly transforms how you relate to God. Because if God is your father and not just some distant deity, then you can go to him with trusting boldness rather than trustless begging. You can actually approach him with trusting boldness rather than trustless begging. Jesus, when he is teaching on, um, on his Father in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, he, he refers to God as Father three times in three different places, and he shows us how knowing God as our Father actually transforms how we relate to God. He says this, Jesus says, Why do you heap up words and babble like the, pag- the pagans when you pray? Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then he says, which of you, if your son asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if your child asks you for a fish, you'll give him a snake? Or And then he says, if you then who are evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In another place he says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need. See, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that when God is your father, he knows what you need. He promises to give you good things. And you don't need to worry about the things of this life because he's made promises to care for you. So how would knowing God as your father change your prayer life? Knowing that God the Father listens intently to you without losing concentration for even a moment. And how would that change how you approach God in prayer? Or knowing that God is generous and he's eager to give you what you need. He's not like earthly fathers who even the best of them and their best intentions may withhold from us what we need and might even give us things that might harm us. When God is your father, he takes great care to give you exactly what is necessary. Since he knows your needs and he will withhold from you only those things which he knows will be destructive. And also to consider, how does knowing God as your Father change um, change your self-image? See, not only do you have His ear in prayer, you have His heart. One commentator writes this, he says, Indeed, it ought to be hard for us to get past the Our Father in the Lord's Prayer without falling back in awe at the incredible miracle which He has wrought in us by making us His sons and daughters. We are God's priority. To each of us, he says, what in my life is more important than you? And this he says to us, even when we are mired in our sin, hear that, even when we are mired in our sin, God goes to great lengths, as do earthly adoptive parents, to convince his adopted children that they are part of his family. He is our compassionate father, faithful in love and care, generous and thoughtful, interested in all we do, respecting our individuality, skilled in training us, wise in guidance, always available, helping us to find ourselves in maturity, integrity, and uprightness. Now, maybe you don't know God in this way. Maybe you think, instead of God, you think of him as, in, as cold or hard or strict, unable to be pleased. But what John is saying is that God is knowable as Father through his Son, Jesus. And until you know God as Father, your view of yourself, your sense of freedom and joy, your confidence in engaging the world will all be severely affected. If you remain suspicious of God's fatherly love, it's because you don't understand how radically unconditional that love is. Because in our own lives, love is always conditional. It's always been conditional. We always have to do something to earn it. Or to make sure that our love is not withdrawn. And so when it comes to... Uh, or to make sure that someone else's love is not withdrawn. And so when it comes to our relationship with God, we carry over that radical insecurity. We suppose that he's just waiting to withdraw his love from us. Right? With the next wrong move. Maybe then... Maybe that's when he's going to step back from us. We say things like, why would he act in kindness to me? Why would God be generous to me? And this reveals that there are two different ways that we can approach God. We can approach God on our own, or we can approach God through the cross. If we do it on our own, our lives will be marked with that radical insecurity. Not trusting God's goodness to us. Forever suspicious of whether or not God is actually a good father. But if we focus on Jesus' cross his death in our place, and the benefits he earned for those who trust in him, if that's where our focus is, then instead of trying to earn them by our own good works, instead of focusing on all the reasons why I don't deserve God to be good to me, the way that we live will be radically altered. Instead, we will move into the world with confidence and joy that cannot be robbed from us. The conviction of our hearts and the core of our identity will be, I am God's child and he is my father. And that will shape and control your worship and your prayers and your whole outlook on life. So what does it look like to live this way? How does having God as our father shape how we live? Look at verse 10 with me, the last verse. John writes this, he says, By this it is evident we are the children of God. And who are the, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Jesus says that having God as our Father through Christ leads us to practice righteousness rather than practice sinning. So what does that mean? What does it look like to practice righteousness rather than practice sinning? Let me first start with what this doesn't mean. John is not saying that if you sin, that you're not a child of God. What he's doing is he's arguing for the impossibility Sorry, he's not arguing for the impossibility of sin in the Christian, but rather he's arguing for the incongruity of sin in the Christian. Um, give you an illustration of this. Um, when you were a kid, did you ever compete holding your breath with people? Right, you'd just say like, "I can hold my breath longer than you," and you'd do it. And did anyone here ever hold their breath until they passed out? I don't know if that's possible. I think it's possible that if you hold your breath long enough. You will, you will you'll pass out. Like you won't die because you'll pass out and then you'll start breathing again. And that's because holding your breath is incongruous with, with living. Right? You need to breathe to live. So you can't actually hold your breath until the point where you will die. You'll, you'll pass out and your body will start breathing again. It's utterly impossible. Because you're a human, it is utterly impossible for you to persist in holding your breath. And if you're a child of God, it is utterly impossible for you to persist in sin. Look at verse 9. This is what he's saying. He says, because the Holy Spirit resides in you and you have your life in God, you cannot persist in sin. And the second thing John is saying is that we behave righteously because we are children of God, not to become children of God. Your identity as a child of God is not earned through your own righteousness, but it is earned through Jesus' righteousness for you. So then the practice of righteousness is what we get to do now that we are the children of God. So what does it mean to practice righteousness? And I think to answer this question, we have to look at Jesus. Um, because Jesus is the righteous one. He is the one who through his, his perfect righteous life, he made a way for us to the Father. He lived the perfect life for us. Um, he died a perfect death for us in our place. And through his death and resurrection, he brings us near to the Father. So, um, I think what practicing righteousness looks like is it looks like growing in family resemblance to Jesus. I think that's what John is saying in verse 10. Um, And he's raising, in verse 10, he's raising a question for us to wrestle with. That the way that we live our lives reveals who our Father is. One of the fun things about having children is... um, people are always telling us that they look like us. They're like, oh, Leo looks like Mary Clark, and oh, Mary Landon looks like John, which is, I don't know how I feel about my daughter looking like me. That, that, right? Maybe, the, I hope she doesn't look like a man when she grows up. Um, and they say things like, oh, what is George going to look like when he grows up? And um, children get to an age, maybe you remember doing this as kids, but it's really fun to watch our kids do this. They get, they get to an age where they start going through your stuff and uh, putting on your clothes and putting on your shoes and walking around the house. Um, Leo went through a phase where he insisted everyone call him John. And, um, <laughs> he's had a lot of different phases where he insists on names being called. But he's trying on, you know, he's trying on uh, this identity as being part of our family. And they pick up these little mannerisms too. Um, like they pick up these mannerisms from their mom. When something surprises them, my children say, oh my goodness. Or, oh my word, which is totally Mary Clark. And then Mary Landon is so used to hearing no ma'am. From, from Mary Clark, when Leo does anything that she doesn't like, her response is, no ma'am. <laughs> um, and I think that practicing righteousness looks like growing up or growing into a family resemblance of Jesus. Um, it looks like dressing up like your big brother Jesus. It looks like trying on his clothes, so to speak. Walking around in his shoes, picking up his mannerisms. Um, So just thinking about this, what are are the ways that Jesus practiced righteousness? Just a couple of things to consider. Um, Something that we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus always snuck away to pray. He spent lots of time hiding away praying with his Father. So the question for you is, do you take time to pray? Do you take time to enjoy your Heavenly Father? Another thing we see Jesus doing is that um, his life was marked by a firm no to sin. He said no to sin. Um, he, he said no to his flesh. And a question for us to consider is, are you, are you excusing um, your sin? Or are you repenting of your sin? Another thing uh, we see Jesus in, do in the Gospels is that he, um, he creates margin in his life. Jesus is interruptible. Um, he, is, uh, he goes to the point, there's a story in one of the Gospels where he is on his way to heal a man's daughter um, who's fallen sick. And he gets stopped by a woman. And he heals this woman. Um, uh, she has a, a blood issue and he heals her. And then one of the, the servants of the man to, who he was going to heal her daughter comes to him and says, It's too late. Um, your daughter's dead. Uh, Jesus, you took too long. And Jesus goes and he, he raises um, the man's daughter from the dead But he was interruptible Even in a life and death situation He was, he was, he was interruptible And um, so the question for you is um, Are you interruptible? Are you able to put down the to-do list And the agenda in order to love others? Um, and another thing that we see Jesus doing Is that he pursues the lost right? He moved towards those who knew um, He moved towards those who didn't know the love of God he moved towards them with the love of God. So the question are you moving towards those who don't know the love of God? Or do you only hang out with RUF people? I mean, are, you, are you walking in the footsteps of, of your big brother, Jesus, if you're a Christian? Are you trying on his clothes, so to speak? Um, and a question for you to consider, if you're thinking about these things. What, what do the practices of your life reveal about who you worship? Right, whose clothes are you trying on? Whose mannerisms are you picking up? What family are you a part of? This is, um, this is the question that's before us in this text. Um, and as I close tonight, I just want to close with this. I, um, I was sharing with a friend that I was preaching on God as Father, and he told me, you've got to tell them the story of Meredith Dennis. Um, I didn't know who that was, so I had to look this up. Uh, there's a great video on YouTube of this woman named Meredith Dennis um, and her being a um, – well, I'll just I'll, – um, I'll tell you what happens. So the video opens, and there's uh, uh, two – there's a couple sitting on the couch. There's a man named Zach and his wife Anna, and there's this girl named Meredith. Um, Zach and Anna are about 30 years old. Meredith is about 19. Um, Zach and Anna also have two small children. And so Meredith, she's, she's about 19. She's been living with them for a time. Um, and I think they, they've hidden a camera so that they can film this. I don't know why I should be comfortable with a camera in the room. I think there's a camera hidden. and They're filming it. Um, and so Zach, the dad, says to Meredith, he says, you know, we want to get together because you were originally going to live with us for six months. And um, it's been a difficult two or three weeks, to say the least. You know, we've all been stretched pretty thin. Um, and I don't know you as well as Anna does. Anna's his wife. And then Zach says to this this girl, Meredith, he says, you know, the Lord has given me a love for you. Um, he's shown me sides of you I haven't known before. And then Zach starts tearing up. And he looks her in the eye and says, I want you to know that you are gifted and you are talented and you are brilliant and you're athletic and you take great, cha- great care of our babies. You are so value, and re- so valuable and regardless of what the enemy tells you, you are so worth everything. And God planned on creating you before the earth, knowing how wonderful you would be for his kingdom. And I want you to know that we love you so much, and that in six months, we still might make you move out of our house. But we want this to be permanent, and we want to adopt you into our family. And you just see this 19-year-old girl, Meredith, just utterly collapse in tears on the floor into the arms of Anna. And she starts sobbing. And in, and in between her sobs, you hear Zach say, we want to give you a forever family. And and these three just collapse into a hug. And he goes on and he says, we love you so much. You haven't been loved. You haven't been protected as you should be. And we're going to take care of you. And this is not going to end in six months. We will always be here for you. You you. You're going from being an only child to having two siblings. And they laugh. And he says... I'm so sorry for all the hurt you've had and that we couldn't protect you from it. But we can and we will now. Y'all, and there are hours of adoption videos on YouTube. I mean, I, like, I had to stop watching them because it's just a tear fest. The amount of, of just seeing the joy of someone being welcomed into a family. Um, that they, There's no reason. You know, there, there's, there's no responsibility to do that. There's, no one has a right to be adopted. And yet, it is this incredibly powerful um, reality in the world of people being adopted into families. But how much more, how much more beautiful is our adoption into the forever family of the church? Where we have the love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus, our elder brother, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do call us um, your children, and you, you call us to call you our Father. Lord, um, we pray that that would be good news to us tonight. I want to thank you for Jesus, who um, not only saves us from our sin, but gives us a life to walk in, that we could uh, try on um, his clothes and try on um, his mannerisms and grow up into his righteousness. Lord, thank you that you love us. Um, So much to give this to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all want to stand up, we're going to sing one more song.